Um, I'm good. All right, so I will not move, which won't be a problem today, because um, I'm going to hide behind the pulpit, because at some point somebody's going to throw something at me today. So um, what enslaves you, or what seeks to enslave you? Now, that might be a funny question for some of us, because we think, well, nothing, right? I mean, I'm a, a modern person in a modern day, and nothing seeks to enslave me. I, I guarantee you that's not true. I'm just going to say that. I want to start that. I guarantee that that's not true. We're going to come to that, though. We're coming in this week. We're in uh, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. And this is the final illustration, really the kind of final crescendo that Paul makes before he is going to fully land the ideas that we have been looking at for the last about 8 to 10 weeks. As we've been in chapters 2 and 3 and 4, talking about freedom and talking about being uh, not enslaved. Next week, Scott is going to bring us through what I think is maybe the most fun passage to preach. And I had to resist the urge to just sort of get there and dive straight in and leave him to the next hard thing. Um, but we're in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. I'm still turning there because um, I had not done that before I got up here. This is, like I said, I think Paul's kind of final illustration as he's making this point for us. Here, what we're going to see is Paul masterfully dive into material. He's going to dive into a passage that would have been very close to the Judaizers' argument, if not the very argument passage they were using to argue their point. Now, this is masterful because he's going to take that argument and he is going to prove the exact opposite of what they're teaching by using Scripture in its proper and full context. So again, we're in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21, and here's what he says. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother for it is written Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as, as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now we're going to look at kind of two movements here. The first thing we're going to look at is how Paul uses this passage, which uh, is a reference back all the way to the book of Genesis, 
chapter 17, 18, 19, that whole section of scripture in which we see the birth of first um, Ishmael and then of Isaac and how that's going to play out for Paul here. Then we're going to look at what Paul does to make a couple implications of that truth, not only for the Galatian Christians back then, but for us as well. We want to dive right into this, into what Paul is doing. And like I said, Paul appeals to a passage that was likely being used by the Judaizers, by those he's arguing against, to convince the Gentile Christians they need to be circumcised. Right? So they would have been using this passage to say to the, the, the Gentile Christians, hey, no, you need to be circumcised. And Paul is actually going to use it to make the opposite argument, the very same passage. This passage in Genesis is a foundation of Jewish belief and identity. This, this passage that it's going back to in Genesis is part of the core of what the Jews believe. It is part of the Pentateuch, which was also known as the law, and was foundational. Now, Paul makes a wordplay here that we should just note because it's good and creative, and it begins to help us to see what Paul is doing. At the very beginning of this, he says these words. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, what they're doing is attempting to put themselves under the specific laws of the Pentateuch and, and of that, that, those writings. But what he's saying is, look, you want to listen to the laws, but there's a greater law that is in reference to all of those historical books from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's saying, look, we take this as a whole. You can't just nitpick out and pull one command and ignore everything else that's being said. As easy as that sometimes is for some of us. They're trying to follow specific laws, but he wants to draw their attention to the whole. And we need to pay attention to this. In verse 22, he's forming common ground. There is, I don't think, a Jew alive that would ever disagree with what he says here. It says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Right? This is just common. He's establishing a common place in the argument. Abraham had two sons. One was the son of Hagar, a slave woman. One was the son of Sarah, his wife. Paul adds which again, nobody would disagree with, that the son of the slave was born of the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this carries the argument that we've seen all the way through Galatians, particularly in chapter 3 into chapter 4. In verse 18 to chapter 3, he says this, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. See, Paul has been painting this picture, bringing us through this, this argument all the way to the point we're coming into today. He spent two chapters speaking of heirs and of promises of sons. And we should pay attention to that. 
And that all flows into what he's doing here. This is, like I said, the crescendo of the argument. It's all coming up to this point. Now, I think a lot of this is pretty straightforward, but just to be clear, to make sure we all have a full sense of it, when we go back to the book of Genesis, and we read that God promised a child to Abraham, but both he, at that time, and especially Sarah, are well past the natural means of having a child, right? They're both elderly. Abraham, we're told, is 100 years old. We are not told how old Sarah is, but most scholars agree that she's probably about 90. Now, just as a reference point, that would be like some of our seniors in this room having a child this year. And that sounds pretty terrifying, right? I mean, this is a big deal. They are past the natural means of having a child. It should be impossible. It's unbelievable at best that this could happen. So in doubt and in clear sin, Sarah takes it upon herself to fulfill God's promise. Now in case you don't know this, it is a terrible idea to self-fulfill the promises of God. He wants to fulfill them, right? He wants to make that happen for us. And so Sarah gives Abraham her slave servant girl, Hagar, to have a child with. And in a clear acquiescence to Sarah's doubt and sin, repeating the sin of our first ancestor, Adam, Abraham, knowing exactly what he should do, does not do that and leads or follows the lead of his wife down a dangerous road. Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael, is the product of this sinful encounter between Abraham and Hagar and Sarah's involvement in that. And Paul says in our text today that he was born according to the flesh. Now this is an important detail to take note of. When Paul talks about the flesh, he is of course speaking about our sin nature. He identifies the birth of Ishmael with sin, period. It should not have happened. It was not the way God wanted this to work. When Paul uses this word flesh, he's talking about our sin nature. And when we go back to Galatians chapter 3.19, we actually discover that the whole reason for the entire law that God gave to his people, that we've been reading about enslaves his people, comes because of the word transgression. This has to do with our flesh. So Paul is being really clear here. That Ishmael is directly connected to the flesh, directly connected to transgression, directly tra uh, connected to sin, which is the very mean, the reason why God gave the law in the first place. Because you and I are sinful people, and because his people then were sinful people. The good news is that God is never thwarted by our sin. Amen? Let me just say that again. God is never thwarted by our sin. His promise is not dependent on our human faithfulness. If it were, there would be no promises of God being fulfilled. But the promises of God, as we have said week after week as we've been looking at Galatians, are fulfilled based on his character, not ours. Which means you can be a terrible sinner and God will continue in his promises to you. 
And he was faithful in his promises to them. So despite Sarah and Abraham's doubt, their sinful disobedience, which brought a child into this world, God continued in his promise and he gives them their child, Isaac, who is born of Sarah, the free woman and not the slave. This is a child born of the promise of God, but not only a child born of the promise of God, it is a child that is born miraculously supernatural. Right? Because Sarah should not have been able to carry that child safely. And so what we see in Isaac is the, is the, the promise and the miraculous. But that is directly contrasted with what Paul lists here as the flesh. And the natural. See, the natural consequences of a man sleeping with a woman can be the pregnancy and a child that, that doesn't belong. And so we get that contrast here in the book of Galatians. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, there was one son born of the promise and supernatural means, and this is a beautiful thing. He said there's another son who was born into this through sin. Now, that's not his fault. It's theirs. But as so often happens in this world, he will bear a lot of the consequence of that. And that's not how this should be. Just take note of that. But Paul's not making a judgment on that situation. He's just telling us how it is. Now, the Judaizers would have agreed with all of this. This is the basic teaching of the Hebrew text all the way through. That leads us to verse 24, where Paul is going to start doing something different with this passage. Look what he says here. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, quick note on that. Normally, and Dennis would probably fully agree with this, I'll see him nodding as I say this, is we are almost never to interpret a text allegorically. Right? In history of biblical interpretation, there are times and seasons where they did this and they would read the passage and, and they would come up with the wildest interpretations that nobody ever could have thought of at the time of the writing of the text. Identifying this person with this situation and, and that's, it gets really crazy. I don't want to go really deep into this. But Paul does that here and he gets away with it for a couple reasons. And, and one of them is not just the cop-out answer. Well, he's Paul, and he's following the lead of the Holy Spirit, and of course it's Scripture, and so he can do what he wants to do. That, of course, is true. But the first reason Paul gets away with treating this story as an allegory is that his allegory actually lines up with the actual meaning of the text. It is not foreign to it. It's not a new idea. It's not something that, is, that nobody ever would have understood. His point in this is saying exactly what actually that passage says non-allegorically. When Abraham has promised the child and through the child to become a great nation, we know looking back that this was not just speaking of Abraham's genetics. We know through the reading of the rest of scripture, particularly the New Testament, but also the old, that when he speaks of this child becoming a great nation, he is thinking about the faith of millions that would come with no genetic connection to Abraham whatsoever. This is the promise through faith 
that is fulfilled in Jesus, the promised child. We looked at that about six weeks ago. That God would include all those, this includes you and I, who by faith are now a part of Abraham's family. Now Paul is making the same argument, but allegorically instead of with the details. We see this in the book of Romans, the book of Hebrews. We even see it in the lineage of Jesus himself as even Jesus had ancestors who had nothing to do with the, the Jewish line. With, with foreigners who had come into the family by faith. We see that. And so Paul is making the same point the text makes allegorically. The second reason that Paul can make this allegorical jump is because it's actually not really a proper allegory. It is not a moral lesson that it is teaching using the details of the text. It's actually what is called, and it's a kind of allegory, a typology. If you're a Bible geek, you should remember that, okay? If you're not, there is no occasion I can think of that you would need to know that after today. But a typology is, is the way that we, as we read through Scripture and we look at what God has done in types over and over and over and over again that helps us to see what he might do or will do even now. For example... One of the major typologies of Scripture is God leading his people into the wilderness before ultimately leading them home. We see this with Abraham when he first meets with him. He calls him to go into the wilderness, unknown. He doesn't know where he's going. Why? So that God can then show him where he needs to go. We see this with the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus as they wander the wilderness before being allowed to enter into the promised land. We see it again in the individual of King David, in his individual life, as, as he has been called, but before he gets to be king, what happens? He spends decades, maybe, running around the wilderness, hiding for his life, being refined and changed and grown to be the man that he will become. We see this in the exile of the Jewish nation as they are exiled into Babylon and into Assyria before then being allowed to go home again, refined again. This is often the purpose of the wilderness, is to make us new. Some of us spend our entire lives running from the wilderness, from the pain of the wilderness, the trouble of the wilderness, the feeling of lostness in the wilderness, when it's actually the wilderness that we need. It's actually the wilderness that we need. This is the way that God works. It's a typology. All of this is to say we can assume that God might actually work that way for us. That if we would be willing, like they were, to go into the wilderness first, God might do something amazing with us that we never could have imagined it would be better. Better than anything you could dream of without it, right? How many of you have been in that wilderness season resisting it, fighting it, only to find yourself on the other side of it and thinking God was doing this exactly for this purpose and for this reason. Things that you would do if you never entered the wilderness. This is a typology. It's the kind of thing that, that literally, if I wanted to preach a, a topical sermon on this, I could spend all day preaching on every time we see this in Scripture. It probably happens three or four hundred times that you see this. In scripture. Another example of typology, which actually plays into our passage here, 
is God working through barren women who were unable to have children by natural means and miraculously bringing an unexpected and perfectly timed conception. We see this with Sarah here in our passage that we're addressing today. We also see it with Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, and Mary's cousin. And ultimately, this typology lands actually in Mary, who had not been barren as far as we know, but who miraculously conceives a child in a way that never could have happened at the exact right time. This is another typology. And we see these, and they can be applied moving forward to say, hey, God has always worked this way. He might, it would be improper to say he will, but he might be working it this way now. And that can bring huge encouragement to us. We actually see it play out into the passage that Scott or, read, or Don read for us earlier, out of Isaiah chapter 54, which is the quote out of uh, chapter, or verse 26 that we see in our text today. As that extends, because God extends that metaphor not just to, to the woman who hasn't born a child and who is thus barren, but actually applies that to all of God's people. And I would extend that to all of us, you and I, who have lived barren lives spiritually. We who have never produced another believer out of a faith that tells us every one of us should be making disciples. Far too many of us are barren Christians. Far too many of us are barren Christians, been given the ability to produce fruit and produce nothing. And yet, what do we believe? We believe that God can even take that and can do something new with it. Whether it be a church that's dying and struggling, and we as a church have hope and faith that a new work could happen. Or whether it's our family members that we love who are lost and we pray for them and we reach out to them and we love them. The hope that God would produce a fruit there. All of this applies because of what? A typology we see through scripture that God is not done even in hopeless situations. And so Paul applies the story in an allegorical, typological way. Now again, after today, you do not need to remember that word. We just had to hit it real hard right now so that we all are in the same place. This is backwards to what Paul, or how his, his audience would have done this, right? He is saying in his typological allegory that this can be applied, not for the individual Christian, right? But, but to the history over all of this, the hope that comes and that we have in him. Paul is highlighting, he is highlighting what God has done in the barren woman, in the promise, and he's highlighting what has been done with the one who was born in flesh through Hagar and Ishmael. Now, when Paul was a Jew, a Pharisee, and this is the same argument that is being used by the Judaizers in the time, they would have been arguing that the free child Isaac was the nation of Israel. And as a Christian, a Jewish Christian, that argument would be extended to say this. That the Jewish Christians 
are a continuation of that child from Sarah, Isaac, all the way through. The Jewish Christians who were following the law as a continuation of what God had done through the law of Moses into the salvation that Christ brought. Now the argument would then be, and Paul would have made this as a Pharisee, so he knows this really well. That Ishmael represents the Gentiles, those who were born into slavery and outside of the covenant of God. In order for them to come into the kingdom, or to remain in the kingdom, in the family of Abraham, they would need to be circumcised according to the government. Why did they believe this? Because it's actually what we're told in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 17, in the commands of the covenant to Abraham, this is what God says to Abraham. Verse 14. This is Genesis 17, verse 14, for you who are taking notes. He says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And the Judaizer says, aha! Right? He says, see, look. If you don't get circumcised, you are outside of the covenant. You're getting cut off. And what we actually read a few verses later, in, in verses 24 through 25, is that when Abraham was 99 years old, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised. Now, after God commanded all of God's family to be circumcised, any who were not would be cut off. And so the argument that would be made is, look, here's Ishmael, and at that point, at age 13, he got circumcised so that he could be a part of the family. Right? Makes a lot of sense. The trouble for the Judaizers is that this is a terrible interpretation of the passage. Because like so many people who would use scripture inappropriately, they don't keep going. And what we know about Ishmael is that he wasn't part of the promise. He wasn't part of the nation. Even though he got circumcised. Right? The promise comes through Isaac. His line is entirely different. And in fact, he is told he to go. He and his mother go and leave, and they are not a part of this. His circumcision, hear this, was good for nothing. He got circumcised at age 13, and all the pain and all the trouble that that causes for no good reason. And what Paul is arguing here is saying, hey, look, look at Ishmael. He wasn't a part of this. He wasn't a part of it. And you want to circumcise all these Christians who were Gentiles saying, hey, look, to be like Ishmael, to come into the family, you need to be circumcised. Paul's saying, no, that's not what it says. And he's saying your circumcision in that would be good for nothing. Your following the law to the letter of it is good for nothing because it's not going to earn you a place in the family and it's not going to keep you in the family. And so Paul turns this upside down, which is why he claims in verse 25 and 26 that Hagar is Mount Sinai. It's weird language there. Hagar is Mount Sinai, right? This is the place where the law was given to Israel. This is the beginning of Israel's slavery to the law, a continuation, Paul says, which is the, the, still the present Jerusalem. So what he's saying is, look, Hagar, 
her line actually lands in Mount Sinai. It's not Sarah's line who lands in Mount Sinai. Now, genetically, Sarah's line lands on Mount Sinai in the slavery to the law. But he's saying, no, it's actually Ishmael's line. Hagar and Ishmael's line that land in that slavery. He says that they're the ones who are enslaved. He's turning this whole passage upside down. And Paul would know. Right? Paul would know. Why? Because Paul had been enslaved in this very thing. He could look at his own life and say, look, when I was there, when I was in Judaism, apart from Christ, I was enslaved to the law. And now he's saying no. And unfortunately, the Jewish Christians who are coming out of Jerusalem, who are trying to convince the Gentiles that they too need circumcision, they are and still are in that pitiful, pitiable state. And the trouble is, is misery loves company. Misery loves company. And so because they're miserable enslaved to the law, not free in Christ, what do they want to do? They want to make everybody who is free the same way. And he contrasts all this in verse 26 with the Jerusalem above. The Jerusalem from above. Now when the Bible talks about from above or above, it's, it's talking about a, an already but not yet present reality. That the, the new situation is that Abraham's family is identified with heaven and the freedom of heaven. And in verse 26, he tells us it's the Jerusalem above. That leads us into verse 27. Like I said earlier, a direct quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 1, which Don read the rest of, at least the next couple verses of, for us earlier. Celebrating the restoration of a barren woman into the blessing of children, but not just children, but of many children. But of many children and of kingdom work. We got to hear the hope in this for God's people, that even in hopeless times, God is at work. And that leads us to verse 28. And if you're here... And you're wondering where you fit into all of this. This is where you fit into all of this. Verse 28 says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. It says, like you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You need to hear that. We all need to hear that. We are the children of promise if we are in Christ. In faith. If we are those who have been saved, who've been called, who've given our lives over to Jesus, we are the children of promise. And what that means is that we are not the children of Hagar. We are not the descendants of Ishmael. We are, by his making us, children of the promise. And this is a beautiful thing. Because he's identifying the Gentiles he's speaking with. 
with the direct family and line of descendants of Abraham whom the promise comes through. And for generations and generations and for generations, the Gentiles have produced no good fruit. They've been barren. And now what they've received is life in him that not only stops with them, but produces new life in others. And he's calling us out in that. He's calling them out in this. And it's not by blood. It's not by law. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you are in Christ, then you are a child of promise. And this is all at work in you, whether you even know it or not. Now, maybe you're not a child of promise. Maybe you have not given your life to Jesus. Maybe you are still struggling through law, whatever else it is, through sin that you will not give up. If that's you, pray. Come to him. Turn to him. Become a child of promise. The only way that happens is in us giving our lives to him. So this is the point he's making. Okay, I wanted to start there. I wanted to make sure we had an understanding of this passage because it's a weird one. It's a difficult one as we get into it. That we would understand that Paul has turned this passage on its head and said, look, it's, it's the, the children of Sarah who pass down and become the, the Gentiles who are now faithfully living. But it's the children of Hagar and the descendants of Ishmael who continue to follow the law and are enslaved still. You're either enslaved or you're free. And then he makes a couple of implications about this. And this is where we're going to finish our time. There's two implications we want to look at. The first implication he makes here is that there is persecution because of our freedom. Hear what he says. He says, but... Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Now when he says it is now, he's saying then in particular. It is now. It is just like the, the persecution that comes from those who are born in the flesh will persecute those who are born in the spirit. And here's the truth. Those whose minds and souls are enslaved often, if not always, feel the need to persecute those who live in freedom. This is the history of the world. Those who are persecuted, and not in every case, there's persecution that happens of enslaved people too. But what we see, and, and what he is seeing and experiencing, is saying, look, what happened in my life, and we see this in Paul, is that Paul knows what it was like to be enslaved, and because of that, he knows what that enslavement to the law compelled him to do, and that was to persecute the Christians who were living free. See, this isn't a detail that we would get from our Genesis passage. If you read through the whole Genesis passage, you actually will not find a moment, as far as I can tell, when when either Hagar or her son Ishmael actually persecute Isaac. Now you will find their families feuding well down the road. That does happen. But what we know from our text here, and Paul is making this argument, that it is those who are enslaved who are going to seek 
to persecute those who aren't. Like I said a few minutes ago, misery always seeks company. See, this was true for the Jewish leadership with Jesus and his followers. We see this. Proving true that the Jewish Christians seeking to lay this heavy burden on the Gentile Christians now. They're seeking to steal the freedom of Christ as the Jewish leaders tried to do with Jesus. It is those who are born of the flesh that seek to persecute those who are born of the Spirit. In the Galatian situation, this is the Judaizers who have in some way accepted Christ, but are still enslaved to the law. They're still children of the flesh, even though freedom is right here, right in front of them. And there are still ways that in slavery we would seek to steal our freedom and joy. The clearest connection, church, is our sin and those who sin that our freedom in Christ offends. This is those born in the flesh, those who are slaves to their flesh to sin and the systems that they must maintain and absolutely hate. They hate the freedom we have in Christ, freedom to not sin, freedom to do the things that God's called us to do and do things God's ways, freedom to live as image bearers of God, being remade in the image of Christ. Church, hear this. The world hates that about you. The world hates it when you do well as a Christian. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, at the end of the Beatitudes in verse 11, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John 15, 18 through 21 says, If the world hates you, no, that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Right? You see, the, the world enslaved hates the freedom that we have in Christ. It hates it because it hates him. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13, says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All of us who desire to live a faithful life will be persecuted. I remember the first time I read that verse and thought, well, I'm not. <laughs> and suddenly you had to look at your life and think, well, is that because my life looks so much like the world? Nobody even knows that I belong to Christ. Church, Paul asserts in Galatians, this chapter of Galatians, that it is those who are in the flesh who will persecute those who are born of the Spirit. We should be ready for it. Jesus lays it out for us. And it is because of our freedom that they hate us. But church, hear this. These people, and I love what Paul writes here. He says they are deceived and being deceived. Sometimes it gets really easy to hate those who might hate us. We don't even know if they do hate us, but we kind of think they might. But Paul says they're just, they're deceived and they're, they're being deceived. This is who they are. These, these are people that need to be loved and pitied, prayed for, and whenever possible, reasoned with, challenged, and confronted with the gospel. They are not people to be hated. 
They're deceived. You don't hate people who are deceived. You pity them because they're missing out. And in our freedom, we know what they're missing out on. They're missing out on not being slaves to sin and not being slaves to any number of other things that would keep them from being who they're supposed to be. Now, who are these people? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. This is everyone, Paul says, who's in the flesh. And this is an important detail. It is everyone who is in the flesh are those who persecute. Some of us who have a tendency to lean to the right tend to think that this will be those on the left. Some of us who lean left tend to think that this will be the people on the right. Some of us who do our best to ride down the middle think it's the extremes of both sides. But Paul is really clear in this passage. Those from whom persecution will come will come from those who are in the flesh. That is literally every person who has not been born again. It gets really easy to villainize people who think differently than we do. But suddenly we got to realize that, that if we are doing what we're supposed to be doing for God and we are living the lives of freedom that we should be living, persecution isn't just going to come from the people we politically disagree with over there. It's going to come from the people we disagree with politically over there too. Christians, we're going to be in the middle of it all. Praise God. Because we're free. Because we're free. Yes, people on the left, yes, people on the right, yes, people who do not care about the systems. If we're actually living in the full freedom of Christ, persecution will come on all sides, as it did for Jesus. And I always say, hey, look, we don't need to look anywhere but Jesus when we need an example of something. So you got the Pharisees, who were literally the conservatives of Jesus' day, who sought to kill him. Then you have the Sadducees, who were literally the liberals of their day, seeking to kill him. And then you have the Roman government, those who are in power, seeking to kill him. And then you have Jesus on the cross, getting reviled and yelled at by the thief next to him. The poorest of the poor with zero power, because he's going to be dead in the next four hours. Persecution comes from all those who are in the flesh. All. Not some, all. This can include strangers, friends, family members, even spouses, neighbors, government, and anyone else. Why? Because they're jealous of the freedom that we have. That they won't accept or they cannot accept. And so we should, church, we should love them. We should love them. That's what Jesus did. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? So church, let me just remind you before I end uh, this bit on this very depressing thought that we're all going to be persecuted, is think about how many times in the New Testament, and there's good reason for this, the Apostle Paul, Peter, Jesus, all tells us to rejoice in our suffering. Because they're saying, look, this is what's going to happen. And we should be ready for it. Praise God that we might rejoice when we are counted worthy to suffer for his name. Right, that's the first implication, that there is persecution out there, right? It is there. Here's the second implication. As free people, we need to cast out that which would enslave us. We need to cast out that which would enslave us. Look at what he says here. 
starting in verse 30, he says, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Like I said a few minutes ago, when you read the Genesis passage, you will notice there is no clear mention of Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. It is not there. But in fact, when you actually read the details, it kind of looks like Hagar and Ishmael are persecuted by Sarah. Right? She goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you need to send them away. Now, Abraham, to his credit, says, well, no, I don't want to do that. Right? My son can't do that. He only relents in that when God says, no, you should do that. I will take care of them. In Genesis 21, 8 through 10, it says, The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, it would be weird to send a teenage boy and his mother away because the teenage boy was laughing, Right? Unless you understand that that laughing is not uh, a happy laughter. We don't know exactly what was happening here. But the same word is used for laughter there as is used when Potiphar accuses Joseph of rape. It's a mocking. And other, other scholars as they read this would actually see a, abuse. Violence directed. I just want to say real quickly, as Scott said last week, it's still dangerous to start con into conjecture about what the scriptures say when it doesn't say something. So there's some value in the word study here, and if we were preaching the Genesis passage, I'd probably go into this a lot. The point of all of this is that what Sarah sees in this moment is a boy who's becoming a man and she sees her small, precious baby, and she realizes that no matter how things are now, they're going to get worse. She's afraid for her son Isaac if Ishmael is nearby. Ishmael's a threat to her son's inheritance at best. She actually says that. It's not conjecture. She says that she does want, not want Ishmael to have any part of the inheritance that's going to come to Isaac. He's probably a threat to his very life because what better way to secure your inheritance than to kill all those who might otherwise gain it. Jealousy is and always has been a strong motivator for terrible behavior. And Sarah asks Abraham to cast them out. Reluctantly, Abraham does. And this is actually the exact words that are quoted in Galatians verse chapter 4, verse 30, when it says, Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. We should not miss the implication that's happening here. There is a command in this to cast out that which is a threat to what? To the freedom of the believers. Paul is saying this to people whose freedom is being threatened by those who would enslave them under the law. And he quotes to cast them out. Why? Look at verse 30 again. Cast the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son 
of the free woman. There is no inheritance for the slave, but only for the free. So verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are of the free woman. This comes back to our identity. Who are we? And if we are those children of the promise that we've been reading about, then the promise comes to us that we will inherit. And in order to do so, we need to not re-enslave ourselves to the things of the flesh. Church, we would be asked by God in the promise to cast out all that which would re-enslave us. That is our sin. You who won't put down the pot or the needle or the bottle. Yes, you. You are the one enslaving yourself to sin and to flesh and to the devil. You who thrive off of gossip and slander and unkind and cruel words about other believers. You who would hold on to the anger that you have as armor and a shield. You who keep your apathy close by so as to never go beyond your comfort zone. You who let your guilt and shame hold you hostage to your past rather than letting you be free to what's next, to what God is doing in you. But church, hear this. It's not just our sin that would seek to imprison us. I want to meddle here a little bit. For some of us, it's our ideology. It's our preconceived notions that we came into the kingdom with, that we never let go, that keep us from fully embracing the word of God. I don't just mean on the left, I mean on the right too. For some of us, we are enslaved to a political party that does not care about us, whether on the left, or the right, or somehow right down the middle. I don't think that exists, but that makes promises that just aren't true. We are enslaved to thoughts and to thinking, to patterns and behavior. Now, I want to say something really clear. When I wrote this sermon, I had about four pages from this point of this detail in this specific way, and I was like, you know what? We are going to blast everybody today going to be great and then I'm going to leave next month and it's going to be right see I, I would be afraid over the next month of what might come out of this mouth because you know Scott's going to be able to a lot of drama when, no I'm kidding church here's what I want here's what I want I don't want to blast you on this issue and this issue or it, myself because I Blasting myself on eight things this week. I literally had pages and pages of journal notes on this section, and they were all about this guy, not about you. Here's what I want. I want the Holy Spirit to work in you. I want the Holy Spirit to poke you and to say, hey, here's a where, here's a place that, that, that I am stuck. Here's, the, here's this thought that I have. I'm committed to, to this idea. But let me ask you, where does that idea come from? And here's the, the image that I want to I leave you with in this portion of the sermon it is simply this that our faith should inform every part of our lives but the rest of our lives should not inform our faith 
say it again, but I'm going to use a different word. Our faith should control every part of our lives. But you know what shouldn't be controlled by the rest of our lives? Or by our, our, what our faith shouldn't be controlled is, is by everything else. Some of us, we start with the, the things of the world, and then we apply it to Scripture. Church, we're Christians. We're supposed to start with the Word of God and apply it to everything in the world. And when you think something or believe something or understand something or live a certain way, you should be asking the question, what did Scripture say about this? But some of us, we take all the, the enslavement that we had before we were Christians and we let that keep telling us what the Bible says. And so we never quite become free. Church, what we want to be is people of faith in freedom. People of faith in freedom. See, Paul's point here is a difficult one to apply to us. We've joked about this, Scott and I have, the last few weeks. Because I guarantee there's no one in this room right now who's thinking, all right, I've got a 4 o'clock appointment tomorrow and Monday to be circumcised. <laughs> not, not a one of us. I also don't think there's anyone in this room right now who's thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to commit to being kosher tomorrow. Like, none of us are struggling with the law. But I guarantee there's some of us in this room right now who are struggling with enslavement yet again to something else. And Paul's principle is universal here. It may not be we're struggling in slavery to the law. It's that we're struggling in slavery to something else. And Paul's point is this. Christian, you are free. And you've been set free by the blood of Christ which leads us into faith and into salvation. And church, we need to be free of those things that we might live and serve Him and not those other things that would enslave us. So again, I want to say, my invitation to you today is to pray. Turn to the Lord and let the Holy Spirit show you what you are still enslaved to rather than to the freedom that he has given you and offered to you. Pray during communion today and say, Lord, I know that I'm not living the full freedom that I could be living. What is it that I'm enslaved to? And I pray that you would listen to the answer on and that if sin comes up, or a sin struggle comes up, or a way of thinking that is not in line with the scripture, that you would confess that to him, repent of that, and that when you walk out of this place today, you would be new. You would be free in him, apart from all those other things. Again, this is more vague than I like being. It is. I... I have much easier time with pointing out those bits and those pieces. But man, the Spirit I just knows more about your heart than I do. Your Spirit knows more about my heart than I do. And so let us turn to the Lord and ask Him to show us those areas that we are not free. And here's why. Because Scott's going to bring us into a passage next week that I am jealous I don't get to preach. We literally for months have been like seeing where the preaching would land on the passage we just hit. And it was like, I'm going to have to do it. You're going to have to do it. I like back and forth. And then finally we got here and it was, it was me. 
Here's the first lines of Scott's verse next week. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Church, I would urge us all to not live enslaved when we have been made free. And let me just say really quick, if you're a slave right now to sin or to anything in your life and you need to give your life to Jesus, to be free, today's the day. Do it, make it happen, confess, turn to him. If you need to come talk to myself, Scott, uh, Dennis, anybody else here that you know loves Jesus and loves you, come do that. Let's talk about what it means to be free in Christ. Don't wait. Don't wait. God, we just thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We pray that you would work in us. Lead us in freedom to your joy. God, we pray that you would protect us from the, the persecution that would come, Lord, to seek to steal and kill our joy and to steal our freedom from us. But, Lord, we know that, that there are times when, when we are the very ones who, who enslave ourselves and get rid of our own freedom. We pray, Lord God, that your spirit would work in us and lead us away from that. God, help us today find joy in you no matter what's coming. God, because we have been made free. Help us, Lord, to pray for and love those who disagree with us, those who don't find freedom, who don't know that freedom. And God, we pray that you would work in power and in might in our hearts, our minds, our lives for your glory. Amen.